Uh, hi there, welcome to another episode of the Colton Boutique Show. Joining me today is a very special guest, Lisa Parossi-Brown. Lisa, hi, how are you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. Can you tell us what led up to the launch of the Wine Independent? What, what was that like? And how does it compare from being the editor-in-chief at the Wine Advocates? <laughs> how does it compare? Well, um... It's you know it's it's difficult. Uh, uh, the the two are are similar, but they're they're very different um, concepts as well. Um, I think the 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 biggest difference between you know working for Robert Parker Wine Advocate and and doing my own thing at the Wine Independent is having total creative freedom to be able to do whatever we want with the Wine Independent and do things the way that we, we feel and we know um, are, are right, um, but also to be able to go a little bit deeper into some of the storytelling, both visually and with words and you know, getting really getting that story behind the story when it comes to high quality wines and the wines that the people are likely to want to know a little bit more about. And, and quite frankly, wines that, that interest me, you know, as, as a, a consumer and a wine lover as much as, as somebody who writes about wine. Are there any regions that you're excited to uh, be going to see that you may necessarily not have been able to work on at the Wine Advocate? Not really, no. I mean, I, you know, having, I've worked in the wine industry or written about wine for, for oh God, I, I think we're coming up to 30 years now, uh, which really sort of ages me. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've visited probably every major wine region of the world now, and certainly all of the ones that I've wanted to go and see. Uh, so it's not really a matter of, of, you know, being able to visit those regions. I'll be able to have a little bit more freedom and flexibility, of course, to cover wines and regions. But I'm very much so of the opinion that you really need regional experts um, uh, looking after regions as well, um, particularly, you know, when they're doing them comprehensively, which is what we want to do. So we will be taking on uh, new reviewers. In fact, we've just taken on a new reviewer um, and, and we'll slowly be taking on reviewers to cover the wine world. Um, but for myself, um, the, the most exciting new place that I get to go to, um, which I'm going to in, in just a couple of weeks time, is Sweden. I've never been to Sweden. And um, of course, uh, the, the Wine Independent, our, our base now is in Sweden. We've got a small group of, of Swedish shareholders, none of who have any interest in the, the business of wine, but are all passionate wine lovers. Um, who uh, have backed the business, and my business partner, Johan Berglund, who um, is a, a photojournalist, um, a professional photographer, has been photog uh, photographing wineries for many years, um, lives in Sweden. So um, uh, I'm going to Sweden in a couple of weeks. They do make some wine in, in Sweden, apparently. I haven't tasted it yet, but I'll have to report back on that. I make good music as well. <laughs> they do. <laughs> They do. ABBA, Swedish House Mafia. <laughs> Quite an eclectic taste, absolutely. What, what is it about the Wine Independent, which is different from any other publication which is out there? Well, there's a few things. I mean, we, uh, I think I've talked um, uh, generally in the press about the independence part. Um, 
of course, we, we are independent and we put the name right up there in the title um, because we want to make that clear to people that we um, have no interest in the wine industry. We don't take any money from wineries. We pay our own way um, and we're free to speak our, our complete unbiased opinion about wines, um, good, bad, ugly. Um, the other thing is, of course, the storytelling, the visual storytelling. So the the level of, of uh, professional photography that I think you can already see on the website, but that we will expand upon more and more as, as the publication grows is, is, you know, for me, just as important as, as the reviews and the writing, um, because we really want to evoke those emotions behind wine. We want to elevate people's experience of wine um, through what they see on the website and also what they read. Um, and to, to make, you know, the whole process of learning and knowing more about the wines that people love, buy and drink, um, just a little bit more of an emotional experience. Um, so that's that's the other thing that we're doing. And, you know, I've changed around uh, the database a little bit. You know, I, I've, I've been working in a wine criticism um, for more than 13 years now um, and uh, have helped to develop the Robert Parker database, for example, which has become the, the, the database for most other wine criticism publications that are some of them that have been offshoots from from members who have left the wine advocate but just about everybody's using the same sort of system of, of database search we've made a few changes and, and modified a few things to make it easier for people to find the wines they love first without automatically going to you know filter by score um, which is probably the most annoying thing for me is when when people, you know, just look at the scores and the high scoring wines first, um, because the score tells you absolutely nothing about the style of the wine or, you know, what what the character of the wine is, what it's going to taste like, or even if the person reading the review is going to like the wine, um, because there's a whole world of different styles out there. If you just consider Chardonnay, for example, you can either have, you know, a very light bodied, elegant, minerally lower alcohol alcohol style or a very big, rich, fruity, oily, higher alcohol style of, of Chardonnay. And, you know, some people love one style and some people love the other style. And or you're like me, you know, you're just in the mood for one style or the other. But finding that, you know, you, you can't find that just by looking at the reviews. So what we've done is add a few new filters on the website, um, including filtering by alcohol level. Um, we, you can filter by body level as well, um, and myself and all, all of the critics we have will be trained on how to evaluate body across five different levels, light, light to medium, medium, medium to full, and full body, um, so that people can, you know, really home in on the experience that they want from that wine. We've also um, uh, done the grape varieties a little bit different for most um, websites, well, all other websites, you'll see for something like a Bordeaux varieties, all they have in the search is Bordeaux varieties. You can't necessarily see if a wine from Bordeaux or made from those Bordeaux varieties is more Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, or even Cabernet Franc. 
Um, with us, what we've got now is we're not doing blends at all, <laughs> um, where you know you, you, uh, a reviewer can put in just a generic Rhone or Bordeaux blend. What you, we have is you know you have to put in the major grape variety um, as a filter, so Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, or Cabernet Franc, and then saying whether it's a blend or 100% of that variety, um, which means that you know somebody who's looking through a Bordeaux report of over a thousand wines. Um, from the 2019 vintage, for example, can very easily find the Cabernet Sauvignon dominant wines or the Cabernet Franc dominant wines um, and, and just filter into those because that's the style they love. Um, and then they can look at things like scores and actually have time to read a much shorter list of reviews. So that's how we kind of mix things up a little bit. Now that does sound really incredible because of course it's a lot more user-friendly and it's, um... It's a lot more simple as well. And you're right, because when you do look at certain websites, it can get quite, um, there's too much almost, you know, generic information there. So when you're looking for something very specific, like you said, it get kind of lost within the, um, just within the complete database, basically. Yeah, it's why everybody stampedes to the scores. You know, I, I totally understand it. There's no other way of quickly filtering through, you know, a large body of reviews. Um, but now, you know, we really want to put the consumer in the driving seat and say, look, you know what style of wine you love. We're going to help you find that style, filter down to that style first so that you've got a much smaller collection of wines to look at that all match your style and what you're looking for. Sounds excellent. And um, you reside in the Napa Valley yourself. And what we've seen from our business perspective is that the wines from the Napa Valley have only started to gain more traction outside of the US. But the quality has always been there. Screaming Eagle have been producing wine since 1992. Other top wines such as Scarecrow and Dominus and Ridge Montebello have been making great wines from there for years. In your opinion, why do you think it's taken so long for these wines to have more of a global platform? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the problem with Napa's lack of international recognition has always been a strong domestic market. Um, when I was um, living in Japan in the early 2000s, I was working as a wine buyer um, for a Japanese importer. And I wanted to bring some of the great names of Napa um, and some new discoveries over to Japan. And so I came on a buying trip here and I was talking to everybody and I say, okay, you, you, do you want to sell us some wines? We'd love to import your wines in Japan. And, and although they were happy to put on a tasting for me and host me, they were like, yeah, nah, nah. you know, it's just, it's, it's too easy for us to sell our wines here. It's too much hassle to try and export. So until very recently, you just haven't been able to find a lot of the great Napa Valley wines, you know, even some of the smaller established wineries like Spotswood or Dalla Valle, mm -hmm. anywhere else in the world. And so that, you know, the world doesn't even know about these names for the most part. It's only recently where they've started to recognize, oh yeah, you know, I, I need to, you know, get my name out there and into the great sellers of the world. Um, and then on those restaurant lists of the world, um, so that people, you know, actually recognize me wherever they go. Um, and so that that for me has been like, you know, a game changer for Napa, you know, that that you're starting to see these great labels all over the world. And it's very exciting. It is very exciting. And um, 
The unfortunate thing that's not as exciting, unfortunately, I need to bring this issue up, is that there seems to be this these wildfire issues, whether it's global warming or whatever other factors uh, are influencing and impacting negatively, you know, the future of Napa Valley. From what you're seeing and through people that you're speaking to over there, what does the future hold or what may it look like in years to come? Yeah, it's 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 a tough thing. And it's something that that everybody here who's making wine in Napa Valley does a lot of soul searching on. Um, but, you know, natural disasters happen everywhere. Uh, this is agriculture and winemakers. They can't control Mother Nature. They'd like to, you know, think that with modern viticulture and with all of the modern winemaking, you know, you can somehow control it, but you can't. And climate change is everyone's problem it's not just napa's problem and you know it, in some areas they're they're experiencing you know different impacts of climate climate change you know whether it's extreme you know bouts of weather um you know and e even in bordeaux and in, in 2021 we saw you know extreme rain and heat and mildew and botrytis and everything else you know it, it's a difficult vintage and it makes it very difficult to make great wine. Um, and, and, you know, largely what, what Napa and everyone else has to do is they, they need to work with mother nature. They need to understand and accept what's going on and say, okay, how, how am I gonna do this? How am I going to ensure that every year I'll have some wine to provide my consumers, you know? And, and so, you know, here we've got the 2020 vintage that's about to be bottled in Napa, obviously a very difficult year here. We had two major fire incidences. Um, the second one, you know, blanketing the valley, largely just before everyone managed to harvest. Some people had some fruit in um, uh, uh, when the, the second uh, fires came through. Um, and some people have been able to make a little wine and that's important. I think it's, it's important for people to try, you know, and um, some people made some wine, it was too smoke tainted and they eventually had to dump it. Other people discovered that they had batches of wine that weren't smoke tainted and they were able to bottle some of that, even if it's a tiny quantity to be able to express the vintage and to even be able to offer their consumers at least, you know, a few bottles from that year. Um, and I think that's the important thing is, is look, we, we, yes, we have a big issue here. We're in the middle of a very bad drought here, still in Northern California. It's very dry. Everyone's on tender hooks about what's going to happen this season. You know, everybody's cleared their land as much as possible so that there's nothing to burn around the wineries, taking up all of the brush. We've got PG&E burying power lines. We're doing everything that we can in our control to try and stop these things from happening again. But in the meantime, we have to accept that, you know, we're not gonna be able to stop everything. And so we're just gonna have to, you know, make the best of it, try and do something. And if, if nothing can be done, then yes, you have to declassify and, and hold true to what great wine is because there will be critics like me out there, you know, naming names. If, if it gets bottled and it's smoke, taint, smoke tainted, then yes, I have to, say yeah i believe that wine smoke tainted and and you know leave it to the consumer whether they want to purchase it or not well fingers crossed things can improve there but um of course it's better to be honest than dishonest when it comes to wine criticism though and you've touched on a great point there 
there have been talks over the years about parkerization, about critics just giving big scores for the sake of being given um, big scores. So top wineries will say, come back to our vineyards, come back to our domain, our chateau, whatever it is, and come and taste our wines. So they're given favorable treatment. With more of an ongoing push for more transparency these days, how do you assure subscribers that with you, with what you what you see is what you get? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of reviews and scores published nowadays are designed as marketing material for wineries. I, I think score inflation is real. There are so many wine reviewers out there now and everyone wants to be heard. And the easiest way to be heard is to make sure you give the highest scores. That way, all the wineries and all the retailers talk about you and reproduce your scores. And then suddenly everybody knows you. But if wine critics don't have the trust of consumers, those people that actually buy and drink the wines being reviewed, they, they are just winery advertising masquerading as criticism. Consumers have been burned a lot by critics. So trust, I think, is slow to come. And, and there's a good reason for that. It takes real guts to be honest these days. And I think one, I think, you know, in many ways, I was one of the first people to call out things like smoke tainted wines. Um, you can read my reviews from back in the days when I was reviewing Australian wines um, on robertparker.com of some of the smoke tainted wines um, from the 2009 vintage in Victoria. Um, Yara Yering springs to mind. And, and when I was reviewing the 2017s from Napa, I was the first critic to step up, step up and name names regarding the smoke-tainted wines. Um, more recently, I've caught a lot of heat for some of my scathing reviews of the 2021 Bordeaux wines. Uh, only 20% of the 600 plus wines that I reviewed from the 2021 vintage in Bordeaux were over 90 or above. Most of those scores were in the 80s, there were a lot in the 70s, somewhere in the 60s. And if you look at the competition, I mean, other wine criticism websites, including the one I used to work for, more than 60% of their scores from the 2021 vintage in Bordeaux were over 90 points. And you just think, well, how can that be? And nobody else is, is even producing reviews of wines lower than that score lower than 80. You know, where is the honesty? I just find that so shocking in a vintage like 2021. You know, consumers need honesty in reviews and it's not always pretty. And you know what? There's nobody quoting me out there for any wineries or, or retailers for the 2021 vintage, but that is not what it's about. It's about being honest to consumers so that they can make educated decisions about what to buy or what not to buy. You know, uh, I, I already talked about, you know, accurately de describing the styles of wines um, to give people a realistic indication about the style of wine that they're purchasing, but quality is just important. Quality exists across a broad range of styles. And even though the 2021s in Bordeaux were a lighter, more elegant, lower alcohol vintage, hey, I'm all for that, but they just weren't right either, <laughs> you know, and there's a whole bunch of problems going on there with the tannins. Um, so really, I think, you know, coming back to how we can make that assurance to our readership um, about, you know, what we're doing, about our independence, about, you know, our honesty 
um, in this era of school inflation is just to be honest. And it, it's going to take time, you know, for people to read you again and again and again and trust what you're saying. You know, when you're you're accurately describing a style of wine, where, whether it's the bigger, bolder, richer style or the more elegant, fresher, lower alcohol, minerally style, that you're saying where it sits qualitatively next to its peers across all the wines that you've experienced in your lifetime. You know, and that's that's what's important, you know, is is just telling it like it is. And then eventually, you know, hopefully you become the voice that people can trust. Because you know, all you do is is once you 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 you're dishonest with a review and somebody buys that high scoring wine and they're disappointed and then they don't trust you anymore. Hopefully they don't think the problem is wine criticism and they choose their critics more carefully. Absolutely. Now you are one of the few hundred of masters of wine in the world, which is a very intensive process. Could you explain the process in achieving Master of Wine? Yeah, well, it's it's a long process, <laughs> let me tell you. It's, it's not for the faint-hearted and it's not for anyone who wants to get a quick qualification. Um, it took probably, me probably about five or six years to, to get uh, Master of Wine. And I should say you start from a high level because you have to apply to go on the program and they're looking for highly experienced individuals um, uh, experienced tasters, but also uh, knowledgeable in the theories um, behind and, and ha- just have real, you know, on the ground experience um, before you even, you know, get onto the program of studying for the Master of Wine. Um, but it's it's really, you know, broken up into to three different parts. The, the exam is um, the exam itself takes place over a week and you have to um, write essays on everything from grape growing, winemaking, the business of wine, understanding the global business of wine is incredibly important. Um, as for myself, actually, I work as a, uh, an a examiner or a paper chair, I should say, for the uh, practical part of the exam um, uh, now, uh, which means the tasting part of the exam. So it's a part of the exam that I know very well from both sides um, of the spectrum um, where um, we put together uh, the wine, uh, the wine, the list of wines that will be tasted blind over a, a three-day period. So there's 12 wines each day that that um, the students are given two hours and 15 minutes to sit down and assess, and they have to um, be able to talk about grape variety, region as closely as possible, vintage. Um, the uh, quality is is increasingly important. Obviously, something near and dear to my heart, but it you know, being able to assess quality in any aspect of, of the wine industry is probably the most important thing that you can possibly do, um, you know, w- without knowing, you know, what the wine is. Um, so that's that's becoming increasingly important. And then, you know, a few people make it through every year. I mean, it's it's not a high pass rate. And, and um, it, the, the way that we assess all of the exams is, you know, we have a group of examiners on our our practical side, which is what I can speak to. Um, there's never any one person who um, uh, looks over any uh, of the papers. All we get is a candidate number. We don't know anything about that candidate, gender or anything, where they're from. Uh, we do know, uh, we are told if English isn't their first language, so we can give a little bit of um, leeway if their English isn't a- a- absolutely perfect um, when we're grading the, the exam, but that's all that we know. Um, and um, basically, you know, if 
the best candidates usually shine through um, uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. Those are the people who are prepared, who really put in the experience. It's a bit like running a, a, a marathon, you know, it's uh, you, you get to this where you're, you know, a, a top athlete by the time you come to sit the master of wine. And, and it's really, for me, very impressive to see the performance that some people put in um, because they are, they are, wow, really stunning. Uh, but it's, it's, like I said, not for the faint hearted. It's, it's a, a long journey. And, uh, you know, as I always say to people going on that journey, you have to love the journey too, because you'll meet some of the most special people, you know, and, and make some lifelong friendships along the way. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, moving, moving on, what was it like working with Robert Parker? What was he like as a person? And if you could name one good sort of piece of advice or a couple of different pieces, what would you say is one that stuck with you still to this day? Well, you know, I, I got to say, you know, working with Bob was great. Anybody who's ever met Bob Parker, he's the opposite of wine snobbery. <laughs> he's so down to earth. He's so um, amenable um, and uh, immediately puts you at ease. Um, and, and that said, you know, the man is an absolute genius. I mean, he really has this palate memory that I've never seen anybody else have, the way that he can recall wines that he's tasted before and, and see them when he's tasting them again, whether it's blind or, or you know, not. Um, just amazing, amazing. Um, uh, but, you know, he got this way. I mean, he was self-taught. And, and, you know, this goes, you know, when we were talking about the master of wine, that, that's one route you can take, and that's the route I took. But, you know, it's incredible what he taught himself. He's read everything. He's an avid reader. Um, he loves, loved and loves to, to continues to love to read books about wine, um, uh, very technical ones to, you know, um, ones that are, are more entertaining um, and has traveled the world of wine um, and so knows it all firsthand. Um, uh, but, you know, the bottom line is, you know, he's just very fun to work with as well and, and um, continues to, to be a mentor for me and, and someone that I look up to. I do, you know, think about, you know, some of the, the gems that he's told me over and over and over again, you know, um, and when we've been working together. Um, and, you know, I, I live my wine criticism life by those. Um, one of the, the, you know, ones that I'm constantly thinking about that he would say to me was that, you know, some of the nicest people in the world make lousy wine and some of the worst people in the world make extraordinary wine. And the thing is, you have to only judge the wines. You can't think about who's making them. Um, and, you know, this, this, you know, is something I think that rings true for anybody who's in wine criticism, because, you know, if you're, you're in Bordeaux and you're doing primers and you're meeting very personable winemakers and, and chateau owners and things like that, and they come across as so friendly, you know, or don't, um, you know, it's, it's, it can be difficult, you know, if you, if you become too close, if you, you know, become chummy with these people and, you know, you have to give them a bad score. These are, these are the, the realities of the job that we do. You know, if the, the wine is lousy, you got to call it like it is. You can't show favoritism. And likewise, 
you know, someone who's just been a real jerk to you, <laughs> you know, um, I remember Bob's story about, you know, when he went to, to visit, um, uh, he was called to visit Cheval Blanc, the, the previous owners of Cheval Blanc before the LVMH days, um, um, because uh, it was felt that he got his review of one of the wines wrong. And he knocks on the door, you know, prepared to, to re-review the wine, to give it another chance to look at it again. And um, the owner sends his dog out and the dog bites him on the leg and he's bleeding. And he's, you know, Bob says to ask for, you know, a, a tissue or something to wipe the blood off his leg, you know, and the guy's so unapologetic, you know, and he puts the wine down and Bob tastes it. And, you know, to his credit, you know, he, he saw that the wine was not as bad as he previously judged it. He re-reviewed the wine. He upped the score on it. He admitted that he'd made a mistake on that. And he had, he still wears the scar to this day on his leg. So this is the, you know, this is the way we have to be. These are the stories I remember most about Bob. It's, you know, the honesty and the, um, the fact that, you know, you can't get too close to the people that you're reviewing. Um, you have to only look at what's in the glass and tell it what like it is. Thank you for sharing that with us. And um, you've clearly got very nice surroundings. If a flood was to hit you right now, what is the one wine <laughs> in your cellar or in your collection that you would rush to save before heading out? Oh, you know, I'm not very precious about the wines in my cellar, but um, I did think about this, you know, and I would have to say it probably be a case of wine. I'm, I'm thinking if I have time to put, get a bottle, I'll grab the case because um, my, my daughter was born in 2005. And um, in 2005, actually, I was I, I, um, uh, tasting around um, Bordeaux. I, I tasted during Primers in, in 2005. And there was this one wine that I loved so much and, and it, uh, you know, I knew I had to have, well, I've got a few cases of it for her, um, uh, for her birth year. Um, uh, and it was Rosanne Segla, um, uh, which is mm. at that time made by John Colasa. Uh, you know, it was for me, um, you know, not obviously the highest scoring wine of the vintage, but just such a beautiful, pure perfume Margot that has this structure that's going to keep it going for many, many years. Um, and so it's a special case to me because I can't wait to give it to my daughter um, in uh, another few years time, actually, you can drink here in, in, in California until you're 21, um, but, <laughs> um, on her 21st birthday. So that would be what I'd say. Sounds very nice. Very nice. And what what are some of your favorite food and wine pairings? Oh, you know, I'm not a real um, uh, food and wine pairing nut. Um, I, you know, obviously I appreciate when you've, you do have that experience when you've got a great dish and it just marries so well with wine. And, you know, I know that there are some chefs and some sommeliers who are just like, they have a gift for doing that, for putting two together. But I will say, you know, there were, there were two foods Oh, there was a food and a wine that I didn't really appreciate until the two came together. And that is um, Sauvignon Blanc and goat's cheese. Um, the, these two things, I was never, a, I know, a big goat's cheese fan. I am now um, because I've, I've found the types of goat's cheese that I like. Um, and again, same with Sauvignon Blanc. I, you know, I, I love, you know, certain Sancerres, but not generally, you know, a huge fan of the grape. When you put those two things together, something magic happens. They just seem to each taste better 
um, than than uh, uh, standing alone. And so I, I, that's one of my favorite. You know, um, when I'm thinking about, well, you know, is there something about food and wine pairing? I always think of those two things and think, yeah, yeah, there is. But I try not to be too dogmatic about the whole thing. I'm going to have to try that tonight then and report back to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If it doesn't go well, I'll, I'll be complaining on Twitter to you. But, uh, <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Do. <laughs> from, from Bordeaux and Napa Valley, are there like any, any wines or producers that collectors and or connoisseurs should be keeping an eye on? You know, that's what I'm always looking for. <laughs> <laughs> that that was for me those are the biggest stories you know when i'm um uh looking for you know what's the the next you know real deep dive story that i'm going to do on um uh a, a chateau or a winery you know whether it's uh here in in napa or it's in in bordeaux i'm looking for you know either you know a a, a familiar name that's on you know an upward trajectory because changes have taken place or um, I'm looking for someone who's, you know, new to the whole scene and doing something, you know, that's either different or just, you know, phenomenally good. Um, so that that's that's kind of what it's all about. And, and, you know, what I'm really happy to say is probably too many to name out there, you know, and, and uh, the more that you, you go delving into the, the regions and really, you know, coming into these things with your eyes open, you know, not just looking at things like, 1855 classification and you know of the the royalty here in, in napa you know but really sort of you know um uh, going through the areas with your eyes open and spending a lot of time you know i'm really spending you know 14 weeks this year in bordeaux as well as living in napa and really getting to know it inside out um, and always uh, looking for hot tips so i'm not gonna you know name any names right now but i'm just gonna say that there are so many great discoveries still to be have in these these regions and you know not all of them cost an arm and a leg and that's always i'm always on the lookout for a bargain um and that's hopefully what i'll be um highlighting more and more uh, for our readership lisa it's been absolutely great speaking with you today thank you just uh, just before we go though what is coming up next for the wine independent what can subscribers and people expect well, uh, for myself this week, I'm um, finishing off a uh, vertical of Ponte Cane um, that's going to be publishing next week. Um, so that's fun. Uh, and uh, um, I've also got the new releases from Harlan Estate and Bond um, that will be coming out um, a little bit further afield. Actually, I just uh, I mentioned earlier, we've just taken on a new reviewer um, for one of the great wine regions of Europe. And I'm not going to say any more about it now, but we're going to announce probably, I'm thinking next week or, or the week after, because um, we've uh, this person is working on their report right now, and we should be publishing it either at the end of June or early July. Um, so that's the, the big exciting news for us. And, you know, right now, I mean, I hate to say it, the, the Wine Independent is just Johan and I, <laughs> um, but, um, oh, well, I should say we, we do have another photographer working for us as well as Fonte. Um, from also from Sweden, um, but we will be taking on more and more and more voices um, to, to cover the whole wine world um, very soon. So um, I'm uh, on the lookout, but also already in talks with people and we've just taken on one person. So 
we're, we're growing um, and uh, hopefully we're growing very, very quickly. So um, uh, that will be the next big thing that we'll be announcing. Sounds absolutely incredible. Well, Lisa, thank you very much once again for joining us. And thank you too for joining us here at the Cost Boutique Show. And until next time, all the best.